Hello and welcome back to Not Just Paleo. I'm your host, Evan Brand. Today we're talking with Dr. Andrew Hill, who is a UCLA graduate with a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from the Department of Psychology. He's employed as a lecturer at UCLA. He teaches courses on healthy brain aging, neuroscience topics, and biofeedback, and he has extensive experience working with clinical and research populations across many areas, including neurodevelopmental, inpatient and outpatient, and people working to overcome substance abuse challenges. So basically, this guy is the brain expert and couldn't be more pumped to get back into the topic of brain health. Some of the most downloaded episodes of all time were with my good friend Beverly Meyer when it comes to paleo and brain health. So if you are curious about that episode, I encourage you to go check it out. But if you're somebody who's interested in improving the health of your brain, which that should be every single one of you listening, then great. You're going to enjoy this episode as we delve into the inner workings of the brain and how you can actually use some substances that are relatively harmless and can actually be quite healing in the recovery process of things like addiction or just pushing the boundaries of your cognitive function and getting a couple more hours of productivity squeezed out of the day or maybe just increasing your current efficiency. So... I just wanted to say thanks before we get into this, and I love your support. Thanks so much for you all that have joined the wellness program. It's imim.notjustpaleo.com. Tons of people signing up that have already sent emails saying it is a blast, which I want it to be fun, but I want it to be effective, more importantly. This is a six-stage program that I've created here that covers anything from how to mitigate the EMF in your bedroom and detect it so you can improve the quality and quantity of your sleep and your spouse and your children to just different things like diet tweaking that I've had to do over the years, even with a paleo diet when it just did simply, it simply didn't cut it. And what I've done is basically create a bunch of workbooks and videos and downloadable content. And that's all at im.notjustpaleo.com. That is the ultimate way that I can teach you how to do everything step by step. So check it out and you're welcome to enroll. Registration's open for the program. And now we're going to get into the show. So enjoy. All right. I'm back with Dr. Andrew Hill who is a neuroscientist and has undertaken the long-term task of bringing nootropics to the mainstream, hopefully. I think that's probably one of his goals, but we'll let him get into that himself. So thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Evan. I appreciate the time. And yes, one of my goals is bringing nootropics to the average person, to the to the consumer and to cut through some of the, the, the noise and the risk and the wild west that is uh, the current landscape of cognitive enhancers and smart drugs and nootropics. Yeah, well, I feel like before we get into nootropics, maybe we should just talk about neurotransmitters. A, sure. A, because I love learning more about them, and B, just because I think that's the starting point before you talk about adding stuff onto them. Sure, yeah. So um, the the primary neurotransmitter now, of course, for any of your listeners who aren't uh, uh, terribly brain savvy, neurotransmitters are essentially signaling molecules in the brain, and two cells will uh, sit very very close to each other, and one cell will release a little packet of uh, neurotransmitters, and they'll flow out in, into that space between the cell called the synapse. And on the far side, the, the cell on the opposite side of the synapse receives those, those signaling molecules, and they bind to receptors, uh, which are proteins, on the surface of the uh, receiving cell. And that changes the cell's uh, activity in some way. It makes the cell more or less likely to fire if it's a neuron, or it might change the cell's receptors and open and close channels, or create some downstream metabolic change inside the cell, you know, not, a, not on the surface, but a secondary message that goes off and does something else, like tell your cell to produce more of a specific protein by turning on a gene or something. Um, so th- these, these molecules, these neurotransmitters, we also call them ligands, you know, things that bind to receptors, um, tend to be involved in our uh, experience. So uh, uh, the most important one for 
performance for things like memory, attention, focus um, is probably acetylcholine. This is involved in memory and learning. And it is manufactured from uh, the sort of natural component choline. You know, when you eat a lot of eggs and you get a lot of choline, one thing your brain does with that choline is it uh, turns it into acetylcholine and uses it as a signaling molecule. Uh, other neurotransmitters that are uh, relevant for discussions of performance and, and uh, focus and things like that would be um, dopamine is a big one. Dopamine is the reward signal. Uh, so... If you're looking for something, trying to find your keys, and you're looking, 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 and suddenly you find them, you get a big rush of dopamine. Oh, that, that, that felt good to find my keys. Or you eat something that's really tasty. Oh, that's great. Big surge of dopamine. Um, you know, a, a, a bee flying by and finds a flower with a lot, of, a lot of nectar in that flower will have a larger surge of dopamine than finding a flower without some. And if the bee expected to find uh, uh, nectar in a flower and there wasn't any, it would actually have a negative spike of dopamine. And dopamine in this way is related to um, learning a little bit, but it's, it's sort of related to reinforcement uh, more than learning facts. And, and by reinforcement, I mean re- reinforcing specific types of behavior, which is why dopamine is involved uh, when it goes awry with things like addiction. Um, so most drugs of abuse that produce uh, you know, stimulant or euphoria effect tend to tap dopamine uh, things like cocaine and other amphetamines um, really boost dopamine. Uh, and, you know, gambling and risky behavior, that all produces surges of dopamine. So there's something about dopamine where it's helping, ideally helping you to reinforce what is the rewarding aspects in the environment. But, you know, being humans and being a little bit divorced from the survival aspects of the environment, sometimes what's rewarding is, you know, pulling a slot machine or driving your car too fast, not, you know, finding the, the, the really yummy piece of fruit that you were looking for. Um, so dopamine, uh, norpine, uh, uh, sorry, acetylcholine, dopamine, um, let's see what else, serotonin is involved with uh, a bunch of things, including mood, uh, although in the body it's involved with heart and gut. Um, uh, 90% or more of the serotonin neurons in the, in the body are actually in the gut, not in the brain. Um, melatonin, uh, folks may know about. Melatonin is actually sort of a, it breaks down uh, from serotonin into melatonin. Um, and it's involved with uh, sleep onset and some circadian rhythm stuff. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's dozens more and probably a handful more that are relevant. But uh, those are the big ones, I think, uh, for your listeners probably, at least those are the ones that, um, oh, uh, there's at least one more, two more I should mention in the context of nootropics. Um, GABA, G-A-B-A, GABA um, and glutamate, uh, these are sort of on opposite ends of the spectrum. The other neurotransmitters, the dopamine and norepinephrine and acetylcholine and serotonin and everything else, those um, make the cell they bind to more or less likely to fire. They're excitatory or inhibitory depending on what circuit they're participating in, depending on which cell they're actually in. Um, and that's true of most things in the brain that modulate, you know, uh, these neurotransmitters, uh, neurohormones, peptides. These things tend to have a, a mixed role depending where they are and, you know, which, which cell they're physically uh, in. Uh, however, GABA and glutamate are almost always... Um, one thing. So GABA is typically calming. It makes cells less likely to fire. And glutamate is typically excitatory. It makes cells more likely to fire. Uh, in the context of um, nootropics, uh, there's a really common nootropic substance, uh, an amino acid found in tea leaves called L-theanine. And L-theanine appears to be GABAergic, meaning that it, it manipulates or uh, um, acts on the GABA system in some way, and it makes you feel calm, makes you feel nice and relaxed. So that, that Britishism of keeping calm and carrying on uh, is probably all about the L-theanine. You know, they, they built an empire on tea, and my guess is they were some of the first uh, broad nootropic uh, users, if you will. Isn't that interesting if you think back of the societal changes and the switch? Yeah. From the, I mean, just the simple switch from tea to coffee changed everything. Yeah, it made people more driven and, you know, less able to sort of mediate, uh, mediate stressors, but also made them more on and, you know, more wakeful promoting. Uh, there's, there's many, many things in coffee that are 
beneficial besides the caffeine, right? Um, and many of those things are, are pro-brain healthy. I'm a, I'm a big fan of coffee, and I, I encourage my clients, if they're not averse to it, don't have heart or kidney problems, uh, to, to go for coffee. Um, you know, I even do, uh, I do a lot of brain mapping, QEEG, in my office, and uh, I make people abstain from caffeine before they come in to get their brain mapped, which is often quite hard for some people. And uh, I, I make them a very high-end, single-origin, pour-over cup of coffee uh, when they're done as a little reward. Um, I think coffee's got so many things in it, antioxidants, uh, all kinds of things that are wonderful for you. So if you don't mind the taste, uh, drink some coffee every day, but you know, just do it without sugar. Right. You know, That's what I was going to say. I, I've, I've had a an on and off relationship with coffee, but I definitely see the benefits, but just, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking of the British. You really got me thinking about that. Mm -hmm. Just the shift. I mean, it makes you wonder what the United States would have turned out like if we did not switch over to coffee and we were still sipping tea. I mean, right. I, I feel like we may have produced less goods or who knows? I mean, maybe we would have been calm and we wouldn't have got into the situation where we're all so depleted that we need something like brain balancing and neurofeedback That's and all right. these things. Maybe not. And, you know, also it may have had, it may have not had an actual operational shift. It may have had a political shift because we viewed tea a hundred years ago as sort of the beverage of the enemy taxing to keep us, you know, under their foot. Um, and we threw it in the Boston Harbor. Uh, as a way of you know throwing off the shackles of the British, right? So um, there was sort of this idea that we couldn't drink tea because it was uh, uh, problematic at that point. I think, um, but yeah, the the tea uh, or the L-theanine in tea uh, um, appears to be GABAergic. It actually it's very calming, and in fact, it's often the sort of the best nootropic approach for many people who are getting into this at first and they aren't sure where to start is to get some L-theanine, which you can often get, you know, over-the-counter, Amazon, you know, most, most uh, corner drugstores have it on their vitamin shelf. And just uh, take some L-theanine with your regular coffee, and you'll notice that it seems to act a little bit more like tea. There's this, there's this calming that occurs uh, when you get the caffeine push and the GABA sort of buffering of the, of the excitability. So... It's a good balance, definitely. I think that's yeah. a, that's a good good advice for somebody to start with. And have you tracked any difference between the sun theanine and just the regular theanine? I haven't. I mean, sun theanine was was the brand name uh, when uh, I think they were the first folks to. Um, well, let me back up. L theanine. The L in in in, in the name stands for the handedness of the molecule. And when you manufacture, when you synthesize uh, compounds, you get sort of left-handed and right-handed molecules. And typically in, in uh, pharmacology, only one of those is going to be bioactive or um, only one's going to produce the actual effect you want and the other one's going to be more about side effects. This isn't always true, but to a very large extent in organic compounds, um, one of the, the chiral uh, molecules, one, one of the handedness sides, is the one you really care about. And L-theanine is, is, is one of those molecules. And I think sun-theanine is the first version that you know, is only L-theanine. And for a while they were patented, and all the products that contained L-theanine were sun-theanine brands. But nowadays, I, I don't believe that's true. I think there's uh, really no difference between um, any other form of L-theanine and uh, sun, uh, Sun's version of L-theanine or Sun-theanine. But I, I, you know, it's just a, it, was a, it was their name for patenting the process to, you know, they were the first folks to sort of figure out how uh, efficiently to create um, an L-only version that instead of an, a mix of L and R. Uh, theanine. That's amazing. That's that's good stuff right there because it's almost it's basically the natural world of somebody patenting a prescription and then it being mm -hmm. wide widespread. That's, yeah, that's sort of that's exactly what's happened. Pretty much um, is that you first had to use sun, sun theanine if you wanted L theanine because they had they held the patents, and now you can get generic L theanine. That's interesting. Yeah, so let's talk about neurofeedback a little bit. Your, sure. Your day job, is that the addiction alternatives facility that you run? Yeah, alternatives has uh, two programs in it, and one is addiction alternatives or alternatives treatment, we call it now. Yeah, tell people uh, about that. So that's sure. in L.A. where you're at. It is on the border of Beverly Hills. Um, 
Alternatives is a, an alternatives behavioral health company that is really trying to bring you uh, uh, alternatives to the way things are often done. We think there's better ways to do many things in behavioral health, in mental health. Um, and we have two programs under that roof. And alternatives treatment is one program. And it's a non-12-step outpatient intensive that you come in for oh, about 40 hours your first week of one-on-one -on -one time. So most programs that are substance programs are very group, heavily group-based. And ours are very much one-on-one. -on -one. So we've got a team of you know, life coaches and cognitive behavioral therapists and meditation teachers and EEG, ther EEG uh, uh, assessment technicians and neurofeedback technicians, uh, nutritionists, movement counselors, uh, all kinds of things. And um, we sort of come together uh, as a team around people, only take a couple at a time, and really help them build control. Uh, and that's probably the biggest way in which it's different than the way substance abuse uh, work is done with most people. You know, the, the sort of AA model is one of giving up control, of saying, I don't have any power or control. I can't do this. Uh, and it's, it, you know, we, we sort of thought that was the wrong model for many people. And it's not terribly successful either. So we, we thought we would build something different. And uh, we, we're not 12-step based. Um, we're not even necessarily abstinence based. Um, one of the things we do, we have a moderation track for alcohol. And we help people reintroduce alcohol into their lives in a skillful manner. Um, if you, your relationship with alcohol has been compromised, we'll help you sort of you know, stop drinking and get, get a handle on it. And then we take a really broad approach, and you're doing CBT therapy with one you know, counselor or psychologist and doing some, you know, examining your life and life coaching stuff with someone else. Let me, let me ask you here on, on the topic of alcohol. Yeah. So people that have issues with it, if they're just trying to exhibit self-control, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm just not going to do it, or oh, I'm going to try to take some glutamine or something to try to take away my sugar cravings that drive me to drink or yep. any of these random scenarios – how likely is it that someone simply can't do the willpower or repression of the consumption? Like sometimes I wonder yeah. how many people it's not their fault that they can't fix the issue. 90% of problem drinkers become non-problem drinkers or more um, with, with no formal programs. Okay. So 10% so just they need help. Yeah, and and sure, that's probably about right. But but I but I would caution your listeners not to. Um, uh, that that doesn't mean that ten percent of people are alcoholics. It just means ten percent of people have gotten themselves into a place where their their relationship with the substance is so compromised. I mean, if you're a chronic drinker, you know you start drinking because it's enjoyable, it's fun, maybe, and then you drink to relax, and then suddenly, if you're drinking too much, your brain adjusts. You know, one thing alcohol does a lot of in the brain is it releases huge amounts of GABA, which is this really, you know, depressant, relaxing, calming uh, neurotransmitter, as we mentioned. And with that GABAergic sort of flood that comes with alcohol is rewarding. So some dopamine gets released and you, that encourages your behavior to do it again. But over time, because the alcohol is doing such a good job at pumping up the GABA in your brain with every drink, your brain stops producing the endogenous, the internal GABA, if you will. Um, this is sort of like bodybuilders who take uh, growth hormone. They stop producing it themselves. Right. Um, you know, if you take a lot of alcohol, over time your brain, it gets harder to produce GABA. And, and if you take a lot of alcohol chronically, it stops, you know, producing this, this, enough, of this, enough of this neurotransmitter, becomes less sensitive to it, and you start getting anxious. And then you need to drink to tamp your anxiety down. And then you need to drink just to fall asleep. So, you know, at that point, if you've done uh, that amount of behavior to get into that position, um, it's going to be really hard for you to stop drinking. You, willpower won't do it. Stopping cold will give you seizures and who knows what else. Um, you're habituated. You're, you're addicted to the substance. Now, how many drinks a day is that? I know it depends on brain chemistry, but on yeah, average. And, 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 and gender as well. Um, the, the CDC, I think the, the stat is three to four drinks like three times a week is considered moderation. Um, and there's a lot of individual variabilities, you said. Uh, but um, my guess is that somewhere around two or three times that, you know, if you're drinking three, four drinks a night, you're starting to get potentially for some people into uh, dangerous territory. I mean, I have clients I work with who, are out, who become alcohol dependent on half a bottle of wine a day. Not a lot of alcohol. Um, but that does happen. 
And these are people that were, you know, it's a, it's a chronic use. And chronic drinking and binge drinking actually sort of produce different types of uh, brain activity and different types of signatures on my, my brain maps. Interesting. So I'm curious to know, it sounds like the chronic is, I guess, more detrimental, if that's the right word for it. Yeah, well, it's detrimental in more ways. Yeah, it's not necessarily any, any uh, you know, the severity isn't any worse than binge drinking, which can be much worse depending. But, but yes, the, the things it does to your brain long term, chronic drinking, are probably a bit worse. And, I, you know, there's, there's really characteristic signatures of excess beta activity because you aren't making enough GABA anymore. You aren't, you aren't uh, releasing enough. So without that inhibition, um, the brain just starts producing lots of very fast brain waves, beta, and that's sort of an anxiety state. And then, um, on, on brain maps, you show that most spots on the cortex are actually over-connected to, so sort of locked into this beta state. And that person looks like somebody who has, who has a lot of anxiety, a lot of scattered, frantic thoughts, and cannot fall asleep um, at will. They just can't do it. So, so uh, that, that's, a, that's a beta-dominant brain, you'd call it? Yep, hyper-coherent or connected in beta and like three standard deviations above average in the amount of beta they make, let's say, or four, you know, a lot. And uh, the brain can't down-regulate into that more alpha state. So they close their eyes, and for most people, you close your eyes in the back of your head, the visual cortex, goes into an idle mode, which is actually an alpha brainwave, this slow sort of 10 cycles per second pulsing brainwave. The, it's like your car's in the driveway running fine but not going anywhere. And uh, for people that, that are either anxious or people that are chronic long-term drinkers, you close your eyes and the back of the head stays in a beta mode. It stays sort of in this active processing mode. And that's a very unsettling experience of not being able to shut your mind down. Interesting. Uh, so you're saying on a physical level someone locked into this beta state, they close their eyes and they get uncomfortable. Yeah, they, they close their eyes and their brain is still like, I got to process input, I have to scan the environment, even with nothing coming in. Amazing. Yeah. So yeah. so basically, you try to shift people out of beta dominant to, I mean, is it called alpha dominant or is it more of a mixture? Or Well, you, you know, um, with the eyes open, you want to see the opposite. You want to see alpha in the back suppressed and the brain in a beta mode. And if you don't see that with eyes open you see a lot of alpha with eyes open, now you call that inattentive ADHD. Interesting. So the alpha head state, if you will, is inattentive ADHD or a long-term chronic stoner, you know, pothead cannabis user. Um, that's the alpha state, being stuck in, in neutral, being a half second out, you know, being a little hard to engage your attention. Yeah. So, so it's about finding the sweet spot. If you have too much beta and the frequencies are too fast and run rampant, you have anxiety or you're distracted and scattered and you can't focus. On the other hand, if you're too much alpha, then you're in neutral and drifting and you can't focus. So there really is this sort of sweet spot of the right amount of these brain waves under the right conditions and being able to control them, being able to say, I'm going to focus now and go into a beta state and drop your theta. Theta, T-H, is... Um, when it shows up in the frontal lobe especially, is a failure of inhibition. And that means things like impulsivity and distractibility, um, this sort of characteristic ADHD-ness, that, that you know, um, motoric or body hyperactivity and the sort of fast-talking kid that can't do anything but interrupt you and, you know, has lots of ideas that are tumbling over each other. That's a theta um, you know, head on a swivel, noticing everything in the environment, uh, failure to inhibit. So you look at all these ratios of beta, theta, alpha, and other frequencies, and um, based on the brain maps we do, they tell us a little bit about what's happening in your physiological state. And then for the substance clients, you know, we often see attention problems or anxiety problems or sleep problems or OCD or PTSD or major depression. And we work on the neurofeedback training those patterns away to eliminate the, the, the sort of presenting complaint. And for substance users, the presenting complaint is often driving the use of substance. So you sort of remove the need. Um, and for our substance using clients, they often, uh, or they, they almost always, you know, we, we encourage them to take at least a month off when they first start working with us from their you know, alcohol. And in that time, we are rebuilding their brain doing some therapy, teaching a, a, a regular meditation practice, um, and uh, their tolerance is being reset because they're not drinking. Great. And yeah, that, that, was so. my, that was my next question, Andrew, is how can someone take this information and apply that? What can they do on a daily basis that's going to help balance out 
these brain waves? I mean, if you're just feeling like something's not right, but yet you don't just yeah. want to throw a supplement at it, what's the first the right. first route of action? Well, um, the the most accessible, the the easiest thing to get uh, your hands on is meditation, because you always already have the tools you need to meditate. Um, meditation, you know, people who who don't do it don't really necessarily understand what it is. And um, a lot of folks think that it's sort of this, I'm getting to a blank mind state, right? But, but no, that's actually not the goal. The goal is not to blank your mind. The goal is to exercise your attention, believe it or not. And most of the classic sort of historical forms of meditation, you know, Vipassana, Samatha, Metta, these are um, all ways of holding a specific type of attention, so samatha, which is single point awareness, you pick a point like, like the sensation of breath under your nose as you breathe in and out, and you hold your attention on a very narrow point of focus. But you know, since you have a brain, since you have a mind, at some point it wanders and you find yourself fantasizing, dreaming, thinking, um, planning, wishing, noticing the pain in your knee, getting bored, whatever it is. You notice you've engaged with the stream of thought. And when you notice that, you put that down, release it, and bring your attention back to the object of focus, which here is the narrow point of uh, breath under the, under the nose. And that, that's basically the rep of, of meditation is notice when you've gotten distracted from the object and just bring it back. Notice, bring it back. And if you do that for 20, 30 minutes, even, even really 15, 20 minutes a day in the morning, within a few weeks, your brain is going to be different. And within about six or eight weeks, significantly different. And if you do this long term and you become an elder, you know, an, an, an old person, um, and you've been meditating for years, you are spared the cortical thinning that comes with age, that's decreased reaction time and decreased sharpness and decreased sleep regulation. Um, so the age-related cortical thinning that happens um, is completely spared if you develop meditation practice. Well, that, so, that, that makes me feel good about what I've been mm -hmm. telling people then because I, I made a whole program about sleep about a year ago. Yeah. And – I put meditation in there along with float tanks as sort of a recovery phase mm -hmm. for bringing down the stress to enable you to sleep better. And it's been a huge process for me. I'd be really curious to see what happened. I don't know if you ever make it down to Austin, but maybe in Los Angeles you could find somebody too. But I'd love to be a research dummy for mm -hmm. the jumping first measuring my brain waves and jumping in a float tank and seeing what happens afterwards because i notice a huge cognitive shift oh interesting and uh, you know a restructuring of everything so if mm -hmm. you're picturing your iphone and you're looking at all your pages of apps and you're scrolling yeah. you're scrolling through your pages of apps that's sort of what it does for me and i'd be interested i'd be interested in seeing what you can actually read from that but it sounds like would that be you're getting thrown into a theta state or what would that be yeah, um, you're probably um, you're probably producing. I mean, I'm just guessing, but uh, alpha is um, sort of a couple of different things in the brain. Actually, about five different types of alpha. And the alpha that shows up when you close your eyes is 10 hertz, 10 cycles per second. It's an idling frequency. But there's one just above that, around around 10 and a half or 11 hertz, and that's a sort of very quickly prepared to react mind. And when that one shows up, um, in the absence of a lot of very slow theta. And, and the presence of some beta, it sort of seems to be this flow state that people talk about, access consciousness, where you're able to sort of really reach in and just kind of, it's like somebody reached into your car and gave you a much better steering system suddenly. So like the shocks are better and the brakes are better and the steering works. You have more control over your states and your, your thoughts and you're able to sort of, you know, uh, drive around corners more aggressively and find the concepts in your mind and put things together and spit them out of your mouth uh, a little more fluidly. Makes sense. You know, so yeah, I'd be really interested to see, but you probably are producing more alpha, a little more of the, of the healthy, you know, medium beta, beta frequencies. Um, and if you're getting really physically relaxed, you're probably also producing more delta and delta is the slowest frequency, um, and you make the most delta when you're in slow-wave sleep, uh, deep, dreamless, sort of restorative sleep. Um, but yeah, so, so folks come into Alternatives Treatment for the substance side, and on the other side of the company, we have a program called Alternatives Brain Institute. And um, it is what it sounds like. It's a QEG brain mapping and neurofeedback house. We do, of course, mindfulness and, and meditation. But it's not for folks that are necessarily struggling with substances. Um, it's everything from 
ADHD to autism to seizure to PTSD, OCD, anxiety, sleep issues, uh, reaction time training, um, as well as things like uh, you know helping good brains get better. People that are high performers that are really out there, you know, uh, kicking ass and taking names. You know, this, the CEOs with three startups who work 100 hours a week. And um, some of these folks come in because they're performing fine up until 3, 4, 5 in the afternoon, you know, after getting up at 5 a.m. And they want to keep their performance up and they want to figure out how to, you know, get more rest when they're sleeping and be more up when they're awake and, you know, perform for just a few more hours of, of clean, you know, focused time into the afternoon. Uh, so do you think that's a safe thing to do, to work that way 100 hours a week and just burning yourself out because you can tweak the brain to, to handle that better? Or Well, it depends. I mean, it depends on why you wouldn't be able to, um, you know, wh- what the limits there are. And the limits on performance tend to be um, uh, multiple. Um, there's often bottlenecks on certain resources. I mean, I have a really quick cognitive processing speed, and it might be faster than the average person. You know, I, th- I think it's plenty safe for me. Um, if I took someone, uh, someone's cognitive speed and sped it up and there was some underlying anxiety, it would provoke the anxiety and they would not like the experience. Right. Um, so I, so it's, it's more about you know, looking at one individual brain and optimizing it. And I might see like an anxiety pattern they don't know about. And well, I'm a little anxious, sure. And I can help them dissolve it. And suddenly they're not um, feeling as stressed. So they can drive themselves further before they feel cognitively fatigued. Or there's a little bit of the distractibility brainwave showing up, and we help them, you know, the theta, we help them train that down so they can shift into an engaged, uh, focused state more often. But it's not, not giving them sort of a, a different state than they already have access to. It's just making that resource stronger. It's much more akin to going to the gym and, you know, working out so you have more strength and more resources so you can just perform more consistently and better. We aren't turning, you know... Uh, the average or even high-performing person into you know the Hulk Hogan of of brains. They're 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 still themselves. They're just themselves the way they want to be, a little more easily. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, because I had this image of just a bunch of electrodes hooked up to your brain <laughs> and just like cranking you up, and then you're just yeah. leaving like. Rah! Right, and it also gets into the idea of changing yourself, and you know we, we don't do that either. Um, I get this question a lot from teenage ADHD boys. They say, okay, look, dude, this is kind of cool that I can play video games with my brain, but um, I don't want to change who I am. I'm extra creative, and I can notice everything in the environment, and I got this awesome, quick sense of humor. I don't want to change that. I don't want to lose who I am. So, you know, is this going to do that when I, when I do neurofeedback? And the analogy, the, the answer is no, and the analogy is, um, you know, if you went to the gym uh, for three months and did a lot of curls, at the end of that time, you'd have some, you know, a lot more resource, a lot more muscle in your bicep, but you aren't walking around flexed all the time. If there's something heavy to pick up on the, on the ground, you can do that because you have stronger muscles. But it's not like you have to walk around, you know, flexed with your arms above your head. So I, I, I think that um, it's about maximizing existing brain resources and minimizing bottlenecks and other limits. And those limits might be things like, you know, working memory or um, some, some mood, or just cognitive fatigue, you know, get, getting worn out uh, earlier than you want in the day. Uh, and so there's many ways, you know, I mentioned meditation, and then of course that changes the brain very quickly within a few weeks, but you have to do it. I'm not sure what the, the equivalent analogy is of buying a treadmill and using it to hang your laundry on, but if you buy a meditation cushion and, you know, don't actually meditate, it, 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 you might as well have, it, have your dog sleep on it or something, you know? Right. Um, and then, of course, we get into, uh, you know, uh, meditation and neurofeedback are more long-term. So meditation affects your brain in many ways and it has long-term effects. Neurofeedback is very precise ways often. And once you make changes with neurofeedback, the effects are largely permanent. So you make, you know, you eliminate ADHD, you eliminate uh, anxiety or sleep problems, for instance. Um, but on a spot, sort of, you know, getting some support day-to-day, um, the 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 uh, idea is that uh, there's these other compounds, you know, nootropics and cognitive enhancers and smart drugs. Right. Yeah. So that, let's let's get into that. So this True Brain, yeah, product. I've read about it from 
I can't remember who who it was who emailed me, and they they were just filling me in on it. And uh-huh. I'm, I'm familiar with it with nootropics, but I had not seen a blend of something that had both you know theanine and things like oxiracetam and paracetam mm-hmm. all together. So I've tested out Nupept before. Uh-huh. Do you have experience with Nupept? You know, I, I do. I'm a little bit averse to Nupept. I took um, it. I took it yeah. once, and that was uh-huh. it. And it tasted like, yeah, the devil. Yeah, the yeah. devil. The devil's turd is like the closest yep. thing I could think of. Like like a full diaper strained through an old battery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really bad. And and I I got pretty bad, pretty severe headache from it. So I just oh, I I ended up just giving it giving it away to a friend who mm-hmm. who had great results from it, which shows to the fact that not all this stuff you can make blanket statements. Yeah, well, one of the issues with Nupept is it's um, sort of the inverted U of of dose versus response. You know, a little bit works one way, a little more works better, a little bit more works worse. Um, that inverted U in Nupept is closer to a V, an upside down V. So the effective dose is very narrow, and it's very tiny doses. And when you have a little too much Nupept, um, people report um, their short-term memory is just gone. So it has this weird anti-nootropic effect if you don't get the dosing right. Um, and the other reason that I you know, didn't mess around with it too much myself and certainly wouldn't put it in a blend that I'm curating for the general population is that Nupept has this peptide-like structure. Uh, peptides versus uh, other neurotransmitters, you know, the brain has peptides and it uses them as, as ligands, as neurotransmitters, um, but they're, uh, they tend to be larger molecules and they tend to work much earlier in regulatory sort of feedback chains. So they're very early molecules that kind of work, um, kind of like histamine does for, for modafinil. It's an early molecule that affects lots of things. So when, whenever you go really far back and early in regulatory uh, dynamics, you have a much greater uh, risk of side effects because you're changing many, many more things downstream. So I tend to avoid peptides for that reason uh, in terms of you know cell pharmacology, so to speak. Makes sense. I wanted to ask, I know this isn't an ingredient you work with, but if you have experience with Finibit... Phenibut, no, um, um, that's another GABAergic, and it's really powerful, um, just like alcohol is. And people get addicted to Phenibut and and get and have horrible withdrawals. Yeah, that's why I wanted to get your take on it because yeah. you know, I, I have experience with it, and I had a friend who got really, really addicted to it. Was taking six grams a day, oh. and you know he he wasn't able to sleep. He he had to make sure his UPS uh, shipments were coming perfectly according to plan by the time his last batch ended Ugh. it was that bad and now which i don't have to say names but mm-hmm. gaba is becoming or not gaba but gaba antagonists like finibute or finibit however you want to pronounce it mm-hmm. it's almost becoming a household product and it's it's pretty concerning to me because i've seen pretty severe issues with yep. messing up gaba like that so i wanted to see if you could speak on that a little more i mean for me it's basically alcohol i mean i think it's i think it's in the same category in terms of risk for abuse all the effects that it produces and do, and do not combine the two <laughs> ever um because it's it's going to be bad uh um i i, I basically think it's it's the, has ex- all the same downsides that alcohol has for all the same reasons so have you mixed alcohol and Finibute before? I have not. No, I have not. But, but people that do tend to black out, tend to have um, effects like they've drunk four, five, six times as much. Yeah. It's, a ma- it's a massive – and because they're interactive, they, they, they sort of synergize and suddenly it's like you've got a massive hit of, of this GABA release, I'm assuming, is what's happening. And um, yeah, I mean, you just, you just get into trouble. I mean, this is anything that really, really alters experience – any stimulants, any depressants, anything that's really strongly felt is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. There's the short answer. So, um, you know, if you need relaxation, something like L-theanine, which is gentle, is, is, is a long-term solution where phenobut is not. Um, you know, there's another one, uh, Picamillin, and yeah. that's, um, I think, niacin binded, bound to GABA, maybe? I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on, on which one I'm thinking of, but there's a few other ones that are the more gentle GABAergics that are probably much safer to take, don't appear to have any habit forming and have much more mild, you know, uh, tolerance before you don't feel them. Uh, so I, I, I think Phenibut's a really dangerous substance and I think it's one of the ones that probably gives nootropics a bad name. Um, that being said, for someone who's 
you know, dramatically suffering with anxiety and has been on opiates and benzodiazepines and has been trying to get off them and they aren't working and get someone to, you know, supervise a, a sane uh, regimen of something like Venabute, it could be useful. But now we're back into the realm of fixing a problem versus improving normal performance. And nootropics are, no- are typically about getting better than good. They're not about you know fixing a problem. Uh, I think you should you know look at more extreme and aggressive things like medications and you know uh, psychotherapy and all kinds of other things and and, and uh, physical exercise for fixing problems. But if you have a pretty decent brain and you and you've fixed all the things you can fix, all the modifiable behaviors of hacking your sleep and getting your diet proper and you know having some stress outlets and and all that's working pretty well. And then you want to add um, nootropics in to just get a little bit better and to have long-term support. I mean, there's, there's some evidence that the ingredients, uh, or at least some of the nootropics that are out there, do have um, neuroprotective and long-term benefits, long-term benefits from stress, long-term benefits for some age-related stuff. Um, I mean, I, I was taking paracetam, which is one of the heavy lifters in True Brain, for several years before I uh, helped Chris Thompson instantiate you know, True Brain 1.0. Um, because, yeah, I wanted some nootropic effect, but I picked that nootropic because I have a, I have a clotting, a, a blood, flat, blood factor called Leiden type 5, which just means that I clot a little bit more than average. And I'm how, just, how did you figure that out? Um, well, I figured it out because my, my family has it and, and my, um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm of course male and it's much less of an issue. Um, many of the women in my family have it. And if you're a woman and you have it, you tend to have har- a harder time with pregnancy, um, and, and more complications. And so my, my mom and my sister, and it turns out my grandmother and my aunts and they all have it. And, and so does my brother and, and me, but I got tested, um, I actually dug up the raw data from 23andMe and found it, um, and Interesting. sort of corroborated a genetic test that I had. But uh, it just means I clot slightly too easily, and I'm probably at increased risk for you know deep vein thrombosis and things like that. Um, and paracetam, among other features, uh, other other ways that it works, seems to make cell membranes more fluid and more flexible. And this has a whole bunch of implications. Um, one is that platelets are a little bit less clotty. They slide past each other slightly easier. And for the average person, this is not a problem uh, at all. For me, it's a benefit. Um, uh, but for somebody who's hemophiliac, it would be a really big problem. Uh, so that's one of the few contraindications for the racetam class of nootropics is hemophilia or you know poor clotting. Interesting. Yeah, so, y- your mic got a little bit muddier sounding. I don't know oh. if you can... Is that any better? That's perfect. Okay. Great. I was leaning. Sorry. That's all good. So what were the doses that you were taking of paracetam? Because I've seen people, you know, any anything from a gram and up, but I don't <laughs> yeah. know what what a daily you yeah. know, RDA um, is, basically. It's, it's pretty wide. Um, you know, people tend to respond to different doses, and people's individual, as you pointed out, uh, response to a lot of these things is is different. There's a lot of inter- individual variability. Um and uh, the racetam class seems to also work best when it's um, sort of started with a loading or a tack dose. You start high and you drop a little bit after a few days. Um, when I was uh, recommending it to friends and family before I started True Brain and then in the True Brain capsule product, um, the doses are um, 4.8 grams uh, initially, and then I dropped to half that, 2.4 of paracetam. Um, uh, you know, paracetam is a very non-toxic, very well-tolerated substance. There really is not a, a toxicity to be able to really establish for it because it's just so uh, safe. You can't literally take enough for it to be a problem. Right. You know, what's yeah. interesting to me is that going into 2015, paracetam is still going to be new for millions and millions of people. But I think I've seen studies, something crazy, back to like 1971 or 72, paracetam studies. Yeah, or before. I mean, one of the advisors on True Brain, one of the other scientists, a guy named Christophe Michel, um, he's one of the few people uh, who's done research on paracetam effects in the brain activity of normal humans. I mean, before True Brain started doing some research recently. And I forget when Christophe's, uh, most of his papers were, but I think we're talking the 70s and early 80s for many of them. And... Uh, Paracetam was the first nootropic that was sort of synthesized. I think it was in Belgium, or it was a Belgian scientist. I forget which it was. And I think that was in, 
the late 60s or so. So um, that scientist didn't coin the name uh, nootropics until probably the late 70s. But parastam had been out, you know, had been, had been in use by then for many years. And initially it was used for uh, post-drowning, uh, you know, hypoxia or oxygen starvation. And then it was used for a while for um, recovering from alcohol binges. Um, so helping you bounce back from, from abusing alcohol. It, I should say you should not take paracetam and drink alcohol either. Now, it's not like phenibut where they're, where they're multiplicative um, and you get in trouble, but paracetam does seem to make alcohol work a little bit faster and better, so to speak. We, we had some interns at True Brain that were wondering if their normal, you know, fairly uh, heavy college drinking patterns were going to be uh, were, were good or not, and, and they were not good. They, you know, they said... Uh, they got about twice as drunk. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, so. I'll, t- I'll tell you a funny story. Me and my dad, we went to a, a winery up in Indiana a couple years ago, and this is when I had first introduced him to nootropics. Uh-huh. And so I don't think he had taken paracetam that day, but I said, Dad, you know, you got you to gotta check out Finibit, you know, Finibit, uh-huh. however you, however you uh-huh. want to sure. call it. So I gave him probably 400 milligrams, which isn't an extreme dose for, for people that don't know. And we went and did a wine tasting. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. And I didn't really give him the warning. Like, you know, you should probably, I told him, I'm like, Dad, you know, this this is basically a multiplier here. You know, take it easy. Just, I would probably do maybe one, you know how wine tasting is. It's such a small amount. I'd say just do a couple. Well, yeah. Well, he goes through the full tasting. I don't. I don't really drink much. Uh-huh. So he goes through the full tasting, and by the time we're walking out of that barn, he's just he's got a permagrin on, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, Dad, how are you feeling? And he's just like, he's like, dude, he's like, I didn't know it would make it that strong. I said, I told you, man, I yeah. warned you. And so for yeah. the rest of the day, he was just sitting. Because we ended up sitting outside and, you know, getting a cheese plate and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, oh, the, yeah, yeah. the permagram that day. Stuff. I mean, it was hilarious. And it, That's great. It's a great experience. great to be able to have that story, but it, it just gets so sketchy so quick. And, you know, that's why I'm glad to have somebody like you on here, and I appreciate it because there's got to be some – a little bit of carefulness. We're such into this whole biohacking movement and take control of your own brain and take control of your own health and all that. But it's, it is potentially a slippery slope for people. And I know that nootropics, not necessarily the ones we're talking about, you know, the beneficial stuff like paracetam, but some of these others, I mean, it's just as strong, if not more detrimental than some some drugs you'd have to go pick up down absolutely the and in fact you know I mean that's that sort of brings me to the point I often an axe I often grind um, the uh, the the discoverer of paracetam when he coined the word nootropics you know a, a, a decade later or something um, uh, the the criteria for the definition for the category is or in, include um, being neuroprotective and helping cognition in some way so focus or attention or memory or something um, as well as having low to no side effects. So I would actually argue that Phenibut or uh, psychostimulants like you know, Adderall, even modafinil, even caffeine, you know, coffee, right. um, are not actually nootropics. They have cognitive enhancing properties and they are what I would call smart drugs. Um, but I would say nootropics, if you really want to hold to a hard line, should not have adverse side effects. There shouldn't be habit forming. They shouldn't produce tolerance or dependence. And as a sign of that, they're not going to produce any euphoria or any extreme sort of relaxation or extreme sedation. They're a little bit relaxing or a little bit focusing, but they're not qualitatively altering your experience in the moment. I mean, you take an Adderall or something or a psychostimulant, uh, another prescription, and you are pushed by it. You feel it. Right. Um, you should not feel nootropics the same way. It should just be easier to sort of get out of your own way and do your cognitive tasks and 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 you know not enjoy them and find them uh, creative or whatever. You know. That's a that's a great point in distinction because unfortunately money is the main driver of this. All being they're all being lumped into one thing because if you have a nootropics website, you, yep. can, you can sell both paracetam. Finibute, whatever, caf- yeah. uh, caffeine pills, and mm-hmm. so basically, 
just for financial reasons, in my opinion, I think all of this stuff's getting really lumped together and it's important to separate what is real and what's just another neurotransmitter altering substance. I guess that's the way to break it down. Yeah. And, you know, one, one, uh, that's sort of the, the, the snake oil calling everything by the buzzword, you know? Right. Um, and the other sort of big snake oil tech tactic to watch out for, if your listeners are thinking about getting into, um, nootropics, um, look at the, the products you're considering and look at the amounts of each ingredient. And if you ever see this, this, this phrase, proprietary blend, and they don't tell you all of the amounts of things in there, because, you know, a whole bunch of ingredients, and they don't tell you the amount of each one, but just the sum amount, then uh, they're, they're probably pulling one over on you. Um, that's called fairy dusting in the industry, where you sprinkle lots of buzzword-compliant ingredients in, and then you put, you know, almost none of them, because some ingredients are very expensive, and some are very bulky. So you can't really put, you can't really have a hundred ingredients in your brain stack, um, and have it be effective. Um, it's just not going to work uh, because you have minuscule amounts of all these different things. So we only chose seven or eight ingredients in, in True Brain, uh, and that was on purpose so we could have the right amounts of these things as opposed to shoving together a huge blend. You know, right? That's that's an interesting thing. You know, because I work for Onnit here in Texas, uh huh. And so we've came out with Alpha Brain, and, sure. And in the time that I've worked here, I've seen the transition from all of the ingredients on the label to a switch to a blend although none of the uh as far as i know none of the amounts were altered Mm -hmm. it was still just interesting to put it in a blend because even though it's a good product it still throws up a red flag for people because Mm -hmm. you see tyrosine yet you're not sure how much tyrosine you know, yeah, so I mean, there's there's business decisions here too. It's not all nefarious, you know, uh, agencies trying to pull one over. Um, in fact, True Brain used to list every single amount on the website, um, and it's sort of you know a, an unbundling risk. Um, I'm, I I always encourage folks to uh, go out there and recreate True Brain if they want to, um, to for their own you know consumption. And in fact, all over Reddit, um, we talk about the amounts of the ingredients, and I'm sure you can find the amounts if you want. But at some point, we we move the sort of full disclosure from the website to the product label uh, on the actual box or on the drinks, because we you know realize well we we won't want to make it totally easy to just copy what we're doing. Right. Makes Although sense. There are, there are a couple of people out there that have really nice sort of studies, if you will, showing. Um, how expensive it would be to recreate True Brain, you know, and and people save on, on the capsule boxes. They, I think he saved about ten bucks a month, um, but didn't have you know third party testing certificates for all of his ingredients, and didn't buy all the same versions necessarily of each compound we used. Right, that's the idea. Uh, is that you're you're basically second guessing quality, and a lot of people don't want to sit there and make that. I've never tried to cap pills myself, but I've had friends trying to make pills and it's a yeah, ca- it's, kind, it's, of, kind of ridiculous process. Yeah, how much is your time worth not only putting together your, your powder blends, but in figuring out if what you're considering taking is safe, is effective. And so, you know, just like you're working for Onnit as a with, with a with a pretty well-designed product, I, you know, I think True Brain and, and Alpha Brain are the only two products out there, really that have taken the sort of high road in nootropics to make a sensible blend um, accessible without getting crazy with risky, risky items. Right. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of, I started off maybe a little bit more extreme, but mm-hmm. I've definitely found a happy, a happy balance with this stuff because I mean, especially after reading, uh, I think it was, it was uh, Eric Braverman's the edge effect book mm-hmm. and learning all about the, the deep, science of neurotransmitters and it made me realize this is i mean this is your brain is is an amazing thing and the fact that you can make extreme in my experience significant differences Mm -hmm. in your consciousness that is a mind-blowing it's exciting but mind-blowing and potentially scary it is and and the brain's whole job is to change so if you're putting things into it who's are designed to change it and your brain you know that's really what your brain's all about is changing and adapting and learning um, things can shift very quickly. And you know, that's, that's sort of one of the slogans of the Alternatives Brain Institute uh, is that shift happens. Um, you know, yeah. people come in, oh, I've been dealing with this, you know, I've been sleeping for 20 years. I, I'm addicted to sleeping pills. I can't, you know, fall asleep. It's, it's never going to change, right? No, 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 it's going to change and it's going to change quickly. Um, it's all about finding the right thing to do to your brain. But brains change. That's what they do. That's right. why. That's why we have brains that are so complex and can change so quickly. I mean, 
if you went and learned a new skill, you know, you, you let's say you uh, picked up juggling or I don't know, even piano playing. You went to your first piano lesson. By the end of that day, of the first day, the hand area of the motor cortex, all of the connections between the cells, will be just about completely remapped. They'll all make new friends and new connections simply by exercising your hands in a new way. And that's in one day. So think about what you can do to yourself over many days of meditating or many days of putting weird chemicals into your body or many days of eating properly with good fats and no sugar. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, is if you had any stories that you could talk about or that you think are interesting for people to really grasp what can happen when you do improve or fix your brain. Yeah, I mean, I can speak about that from you know peak performance or from a um, you know remedi- remediating deficit uh, point of view. Yeah, let's do one of both if you have time to. Sure. So um, on the deficit side... Um, there's often this cluster of sort of overlapping issues with attention, stress, and sleep. And, um, you know, I, I've had uh, some folks come in to my office that were, you know, really intelligent, really, you know, great people. Um, but the ADHD-ness and the anxiety and the sleep stuff is so profound that they're just uh, impaired. You know, they just can't get out of their own way. Um, and I have, I've had a few clients in the past year that are folks that, you know, are really brilliant individuals, uh, a man and a woman, one of each. And, but, their, but their stuff was just so dysregulated, they had dropped out of school and couldn't get themselves, uh, you know, through a program. They couldn't study. They were, you know, one guy was chronically sleep deprived and just could not focus. He had to plan a nap whenever he drove somewhere because 20 minutes of driving would lull him and he would, like, crash a car. So he learned to plan a stop 20 minutes into, into a trip. Um, another client, uh, the woman, uh, profoundly impulsive. And so she would do things like, uh, you know, drive through the turnstile of a parking garage if it took too long. Um, just, just spontaneously, just impulsively act. Um, and this particular person, uh, was also a poly substance abuser and, you know, went through rehab after rehab after rehab before walking into my, to my office and, uh, you know, uh, we worked with her for a few months, and she's now um, basically not ADHD. Uh, recently returned from a trip overseas on her own, traveling the world. Um, this is not a functional, you know, capacity. She's a young woman in her twenties, and and she, uh, when she, we, when we met her, she wasn't able to live alone, didn't have an apartment, wasn't able to hold a job down. Um, she's working uh, currently. She's you know uh, returned from this trip overseas, was able to navigate a foreign culture. Um, with all of the stressors and overwhelming stimuli and people not you know, having the same cultural reference points and social niceties. So I'm sure she was bored, frustrated, anxious uh, quite a lot. And she sailed through it and really enjoyed the process. So um, th- this is somebody who was about as ADHD as you can get. I mean, I have the same story. I was, I'm a pretty you know, put-together guy now. But if you go back 20 years, 30 years, I was about as hyperactive, impulsive as, as, as it gets really. And I would not have made it into and through graduate school if I hadn't learned to train my brain and do neurofeedback. And I, you know, very quickly eliminated my impulsivity so I could sit and focus and study long term. Interesting. So you're saying you found neurofeedback while you were still in school? I I found neurofeedback. So I I took about a decade off between undergrad and grad. And I've been always interested in the brain. I have a psychology slash uh, neuroscience focused undergrad degree um, as well as sort of biopsychology. And uh, in the intervening decade, I worked in health and human services and did all kinds of different things working with people and their brains um, and a lot of mental illness work. And I ended up going to high tech after that, and I ended up, you know, doing some pretty uh, high end uh, sort of tech evangelism work when the you know the internet bubble was 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 bubbling, and um, when that bubble contracted, I I was like uh, I sort of realized that I had missed all the health and human services. The you know I cared a little more about people's experience than the bottom line, and uh, I returned to human services, and the way that I found my my way in was uh, working for a neurofeedback. Um, uh, clinician in in Rhode Island uh, who focused on autistic spectrum and ADHD kids, um, one of the best neurofeedback centers in the world, a place called the Neurodevelopment Center. And, uh, you know, I, I, I learned so much about the brain uh, working under this uh, psychologist, and I saw changes. I saw ADHD just dropping away kid after kid after kid. I saw nonverbal autistic kids start speaking. 
I saw profoundly, you know, anxious, self-stimming, autistic kids with obsessive behaviors become pleasant, you know, people that that really enjoyed their lives. Um, and so while I was while working there, I sort of you know, would stay after hours and use the equipment. You know, kind of like if you worked in a gym, you would work out, right? And uh, it probably wasn't more than a couple of months before my ADHD went from fairly rampant to non-existent. And that was, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago at this point. Um, and it's remained mostly, uh, you know, mostly gone. I don't train myself nearly as much as I should. You know, who shaves the barber, so yeah. to speak. But, um, but yeah, so I made those changes. I mean, ADHD, it's sort of low-hanging fruit. Uh, for neurofeedback, it's really easy to work on attention management systems with, uh, with neurofeedback. And then um, in terms of peak performance, you know, I, I sort of already described the, the characteristic person that comes in, um, you know, the, the, the executive who's super high-powered, who's really working hard and, and uh, you know, just gets a little bit better stress management, better sleep. But I've also had, you know, uh, elders come in who are in their 60s or 70s, and there's nothing really wrong, you know, at all. They're, 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 they're fine, but they're 65 or 75, and they're slower than they used to be 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Or their sleep's not quite as stable, and it's still healthy sleep. You know, a doctor wouldn't consider it problematic, but they do. They said, well, you know, why am I not sleeping as well? Why am I waking up, you know, more often throughout the night? Why am I, you know, a half a second late in my reaction times when driving? Um, these are not pathologies. These are not problems. This is just, you know, normal cognitive aging. Uh, and those folks, we can very, you know, quickly sort of tune up their brains, sharpen up their attention and improve their sleep. So this, it's, it's fairly straightforward to, to, you know, gross regulatory tuning for many people, um, in a fairly permanent way. Uh, and then if there's folks that need even more, we, you know, recommend neurofeedback, sorry, recommend mindfulness practices that can, complement and sort of uh, permanize, uh, if you will. I, I sort of view mindfulness and neurofeedback as a one-two punch where um, mindfulness is like your sports coach helping your technique and neurofeedback is your personal trainer making you bang out one more rep. And then nootropics are the you know, nutritional plan you're following to make sure that all the work you're doing is maximal. That was great. Great analogy there. I mean, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of this topic, so <laughs> you'll have to come back on the show sometime. I'd be happy to. Okay. Yeah, Evan, if you ever come through Los Angeles, uh, maybe I'll do a brain map on you. We could do one uh, on nootropics and off of nootropics. Or on a, and I, I don't have a float tank here, but if you can find one in L.A., we'll, uh, we can do a float tank uh, pre and post QEG if you want. That would be great. That sounds awesome. Well, yeah, we'll send people back. Uh, they can check out True Brain. But what else should they check out? I guess obviously if they're in the L.A. area, I do have some friends, and I know there's a bunch of fans of the show in L.A. So, are, right. I mean, is it – sort of an open door you, you mentioned it's you, you take very few people at your at your centers. well, well for, for the substance abuse we do because it's so intense and we have a team approach we come around you for the whole week um and we only take i think uh, two pe- two new people every week in the substance side on the um on the general brain training side i mean i've got 30 or 40 clients right now we're always taking new clients it's sort of a it's sort of a, a gym almost for your brain in there so it's a lot more open and accessible um and there, I mean, we currently my my clients range from a four year old to a seventy two year old, you know, and it's just all kinds of stuff from uh, uh, people working on social skills and attention, people working on sleep, you know, mood. But um, yeah, uh, it's, it's a very much an open door uh, there. And if folks are interested and want to come check out the Brain Training Center, I'm happy to show them around. Of course, no obligation. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, you can check me out on Twitter, Andrew Hill PhD, or uh, Alternatives BH, which stands for behavioralhealth.com, um, is where you can find alternatives. And then TrueBrain, T-R-U-Brain.com. And awesome. Evan, if you check in with the team at TrueBrain, they will give you a, uh, a discount code for your listeners that's uh, fairly nice. Chris has been giving out pretty good codes to podcast hosts these days. So check in with, uh, with those guys, and I'm sure you can put a, uh, a nice discount code in your show notes if you want. Oh, people would love that. I appreciate that. Yeah, you bet. Well, cool. Well, thanks, and uh, I look forward to talking with you again. This was awesome. All right, Evan. Yeah, you too. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Andrew Hill. And if you wanted to check out Alpha Brain, for example, you can visit my website, notjustpaleo.com, and in the sidebar, you'll see the picture there for Alpha Brain, or also you can simply just go to 
notjustpaleo.com slash brain. And that way you can read about all the ingredients and read about the science that I've helped work on behind the scenes that really explain how nootropics work and how specific ingredients that we use in the product work. And I will check on a discount code and see what the team can do there. But in the meantime, you're welcome to check out these resources. And lastly, I hope you have a great Christmas. I know we're approaching really quickly. And if you celebrate it, then that's awesome. I hope you are spending time with your family and really taking the time to slow down. Because I definitely am. You may notice this podcast was two days later than normal if you're a super fan and you download it immediately. So thank you for staying on top of me and supporting me through the holidays here as I begin to slip into a a mild hibernation period, but still coming strong every week, and I really look forward to the next year that's coming up here. So thanks for supporting me on this journey. And lastly, my Christmas present that I'm demanding from you is a review on iTunes. So we've already passed, I forgot to mention it, but we've already passed the two-year anniversary of the podcast and I couldn't be happier so thanks for supporting me along this journey and I hope that your life has improved as much as mine has with all of the information that's been presented here on this show so my present that I'm requesting is that you go to iTunes I know it's a little bit of a difficult process but just go to notjustpaleo.com slash iTunes if you're on your phone or your Android, your tablet, whatever you're on, you should be able to leave a review pretty much anywhere. However, it does take a couple minutes. So give me a couple minutes of your time. Once you get to iTunes, you're on my podcast, right? You're on the Notches Paleo podcast. You see ratings and reviews. You click there. Boom. Now, if you're logged into your iTunes account, you'll see the stars there. So go ahead and give me your star rating, whatever you think, and then type in your message, and then submit review. Done. That's it. That's my Christmas present that you can give me. I hope to see at least 50 reviews by the new year. That is a great goal, and I think we can achieve it. And that way, starting January 1st, when all the people finally get motivated again to get going, and they're not as awesome as you who've been pumping it out all year round they'll get on board too and they'll get on board sooner and get access to this podcast because the reviews will help it up in the rankings sounds like a really long-winded way to to ask for a review but it really does make a difference and that's the only way this show keeps going so i'm dependent on them and i i thank you for your reviews there and i'll let you go Once again, have a good one and really take care of yourself this time of the year. And I hope that you have a blessed holiday season. So I'll talk to you next week. Bye. He acts like it's all good, yeah, like everything's cool. Kiss her, girl, and I never please her. She doesn't have a clue that he's terrible blues. Why I'm in a tie, I got to watch out, girl. Don't want to see her cry her eyes out, girl. Because I've been watching, you've been hurting. Let me be the one that loves you.